You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Friends, I am less evil than you. I, yeah, I am less evil than you. According to a recent study done at the University of Chicago, that's a statement that most people in our culture would affirm. Through four four experiments, the researchers found that thousands of participants first believed that they were less prone to do bad than their neighbors were. Second, believed that if they did something bad, their moral compass would make them feel worse about their badness than their neighbors. And third, and maybe most convictingly, they assumed others were inherently bad people because of their actions, but often excused themselves for the same sorts of things. Two researchers named Nicholas Epley and Nadav Klein put it this way. The, study of the, title was, or the, the title of the study was Less Evil Than You. They said this, people evaluate themselves by adopting an inside perspective, focused heavily on evaluations of mental states like intentions or motives, but evaluate others based on an outside perspective focused on observed behavior for which intentions and motives are then assumed. In other words, you guys, we tend to grade our behavior on a curve and grade the rest of our neighbor's behavior really strictly. And that leads us oftentimes to make broad and sweeping claims about the character, about the motive, about the value of our neighbors. And if we're really being honest with ourselves, we know we do this all the time. Think about those moments when you're stuck in traffic. How easy it is to jump to conclusions about those huge lane-blocking V12 trucks or Hummers, right? I mean, they're cutting us off in traffic. Clearly, they're selfish idiots, all of them, right? Driving around, wastefully burning their 40-gallon tanks of gas with their selfish double-back tires. What are those even for? And mud flaps and their religious and political bumper stickers. Just disgustingly selfish, right? What about those folks who walk around with the sandwich boards hanging on their neck that say God hates whoever or whatever. Those people really get me going. I mean, we all know they're just no good religious bigots who make Jesus look ugly to the world, right? They're morally depraved. They're out of touch with reality. Don't you just hate bigots? Isn't it just remarkable how we can tell who to blame in the world from the comfort of our couch, looking at a TV or a screen, Isn't it amazing how much moral clarity we have? You see what's happening in us? There's this innate human tendency to notice a part of someone else's outward behavior and then sort them into categories of good or bad or hero or villain just based upon an action or a statement. Think about it in your own life. Have you noticed how easy it is to draw the line between good and evil when it comes to other people, but how blurry that line becomes when you look at yourself? How convenient for us. We're all ironically amazing at being self-righteous towards the self-righteous. And us Christians, by the way, are no exception to this. In fact, when most people think of Christians, this is the sort of behavior they think of. There's a Barna study, they're a research group that did a massive study of young non-Christians. And they asked these young non-Christians what sort of adjectives they would use to describe Christians. Anybody want to guess some of the words they use? They aren't flattering. Hypocrite. Hypocrite was number two. Number one was judgmental. 
They grade everyone else by really harsh rules, but then they're hypocritical. They don't actually practice those rules. The third word was old-fashioned. That they're out of touch with the reality of the world. Oof. It turns out the same things that affect humans out there in the world affect us sitting in this room at church together. And here's why, you guys. We have an eye problem in both senses of the word. We tend to view ourselves more highly than we ought to. We tend to view others more lowly than we ought to. And when we're religious, we tend to think that God is on our side and not on our neighbors. Now, spoiler alert, Jesus knows this about us. It's not a mystery to him. Jesus knows that there's something in us that causes us to be arrogant towards others and ignorant toward ourselves. But at the same time, it's precisely through broken and screwed up people like us that Jesus brings the message of the kingdom. And Jesus' mission is to redeem the rubble of the world's messiness and our messiness and create a healing and restoring community and bring true, lasting life out of it. And that approach of Jesus, the bringing together of this ragtag, broken group of people and transforming them through his presence and teaching, that's exactly what we're walking through in this current teaching series here at Midtown. We're calling this series, You've Heard It Said, But Jesus Says to You. And the whole goal of this series is to evaluate some of the ideas or beliefs or phrases that we hear in our culture and bring them before what Jesus says about living in the kingdom and see where they might line up or not line up. See how Jesus is encouraging us to live differently in the world. Because we believe that in living in Jesus' kingdom, we actually find what it means to be truly, fully human. And today, we're examining what Jesus says about our eye problem and how his teaching can prompt us to become a community of people who live with a healthier picture of ourselves and of God and of others around us. And that picture can transform not just our lives, but our relationships and really the city and state and world around us. So friends, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn in it with me or an app, if that's your preference, to Matthew chapter 7. That's where we're going to be reading today. Matthew is the first book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. We in Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The word's going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Matthew 7, starting in verse 1. Are these the words of Jesus. Do not judge, so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, hey, let me get that speck out of your eye, while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Back in my undergrad in college, I majored in English. Shout out to the liberal arts majors. There's few of us, but we're a powerful minority. And besides all the time that I got to spend uh, studying great literature and learning how to read that literature well and identify symbolism and themes, I also had to take a class called Grammar and Linguistics, which I hated at first because it was basically math and science colonizing my English degree. I left those things to study words, and now math and science were intruding upon my words. I didn't like it. But as I continued in the class, there were actually a number of helpful takeaways, and perhaps none more helpful than this. Words often have a range of meaning, and those meanings evolve over time. In all languages, we can use the same word to mean a multitude of different things. For instance, the word run. It can mean to move really quickly using your legs, right? But it can also mean to manage an organization, like run a business. Or it can mean that something is working, like my car runs just fine, or it's not running. Or the word take. 
It can mean to move something from one place to another, like take your toothbrush on a trip, but it can also mean to take possession of something, like a child stealing a toy from another child. Or it can mean to undergo, undergo a certain practice, take an exam, take a nap, what many of you may want to do later this afternoon on your Sunday. You guys thought you were coming to church today. This is Grammar and Linguistics 101. Welcome to class. But here's why this is important for us to remember. When we read words in the Bible, they often have ranges of meaning that we have to explore well if we're going to understand what the Bible is getting at. And that's especially important in our passage today because there's one word in particular that we often can miss the meaning of if we overlook it. It's the word judge. The word that Jesus uses for judge here in Greek is the word krino. It's actually where we get the, the words critical or critique or criticize, similar root. And krino, or to judge, was actually a common word with a wide range of meanings in Greek. And as it turns out, judge in English also has a wide range of meanings. For instance, to krino or to judge something can mean to decide, to look at two different things and just make a decision on which of them is superior to the other. So an example of this for you real quick. As an easy example, right? You can look at these two things. Cool Ranch Doritos or Nacho Cheese Doritos? And we all know the right answer is Nacho Cheese. Who said Cool Ranch? Get out of here. No, 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 no. The answer is clearly Nacho Cheese. You get the little dust on your fingers afterward, right? You get two snacks. You eat the snack, and then you've got more snacks on your fingers. That's a little gross. So to judge, to judge can just mean to make a decision. Based on information presented in front of you, which is superior? And in this case, obviously, not your cheese. But it's not just to uh, decide. It's also to evaluate things. This is actually one that we're really familiar with in our culture. Judges on America's Got Talent, right, or MasterChef, they take their expertise and use it to evaluate whether something is good or bad. And the same principles at work with a judge in a courtroom, right, Judge Judy. The greatest, right? Judge Judy is the greatest. <laughs> Judges have particular expertise in the law that enables them to evaluate good from bad, right from wrong. And when someone can't evaluate well, we say that they aren't able to judge well. For instance, when somebody is under the influence of alcohol or drugs, what do we say about them? They have impaired judgment, right? They're not able to evaluate well. So to crino or to judge oftentimes just means to make a wise choice or a good decision. It's actually not that complicated of a word, but in our day, we have oftentimes an inherently negative picture of judging. Don't judge me, right? Don't be so judgy. We think that it implies superiority or arrogance, but in reality, there are good ways to judge without becoming arrogant. Oftentimes, it just means to evaluate or make a decision that is wise or unwise, good or bad, helpful or unhelpful, which raises an important question in this passage because Jesus tells us not to judge. So is Jesus telling us not to evaluate wise from unwise or good from bad? Is he saying to ditch our moral compass, to don't, not use any critical thinking to make significant moral evaluations in our life? Is that what he's saying? No, right? That would be ludicrous. This passage comes in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And much of this sermon has been about how we clarify and make wise decisions, how we judge between right and wrong, how we know what's good or bad, healthy or unhealthy. This whole sermon has been about making good judgment. So becoming a disciple of Jesus means we grow in good judgment. We grow in our discernment between wise and unwise or good or bad. So Jesus seems to be critiquing a different form of judgment here. And we actually get more clarity on what form of judgment he's critiquing by looking at the parallel passage to this teaching in the Gospel of Luke. In that parallel passage, it says this, 
Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Sounds familiar. But then he continues. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. And now we're on to it. The bad form of judgment is the kind that leads to condemnation of my neighbor. Good judgment means discerning things. Bad judgment means damning people. The move that Jesus opposes in this text is the move from discerning wise and unwise things to damning the people who practice those things. He's telling us to avoid that move where we see an action or a behavior in someone else and make judgments about what we can't see in them. Their value, their character, their worth, their motives. According to Jesus, we're to be discerning of things, not damning of people. And the reason why he tells us that is exactly the reason the researchers at the University of Chicago discovered. We have an eye problem. All of us. And so Jesus, in classic Jesus fashion, he doesn't do a science experiment to prove that to us. He tells a parable. That was one of Jesus' favorite things to do. He tells a story, and this story has a bit of humor in it with also a kind of swift punch to the gut for each of us, which is a classic parable move. He says, when you see a speck in your neighbor's eye, or why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but don't notice the log in your own? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log's in yours? You hypocrite. You stage actor. You pretender. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. This is an example of a humorous hyperbole on Jesus' part. He loves to do this, all of the gospel. He makes a huge exaggeration in order to make his point. And so here, he wants us to think of those times when you get that that little speck of dust or something stuck in your eye, and you try everything you can. You, like, run it under the shower. You do, like, one of these moves, right? Emily always tries to, like, blow in my face to get it out when she... That never works, but it's her favorite thing to do when I get something stuck in my eye. That's what's going on in your neighbor's eye. But then, he uses this absurd and ridiculous picture of like a massive log protruding from your eyeball. Think like a tree trunk sticking out of your face. That's what he wants you to picture here. It's stuck in your eye. And it can't even fit in your eye, right? That's the whole point. It's impossible. That's how absurd this example is. And he's giving us this parable to expose different facets of our eye problem. There's three different ones, I think, that are really clear in this passage. First, our eye problem is that we don't have all the facts. We don't have all the facts. Notice, in the parable, what part of your body do you use to notice the speck in your neighbor's eye? Your eye, right? You're using your eye to notice the speck in your neighbor's eye. But where's the log? It's in your eye. That's not an accident, right? Jesus is saying that you do not have comprehensive vision to see that speck. You don't know the full story. He's saying that whenever we see a behavior or a choice that someone else makes even if it really is immature or foolish or harmful, we must assume that our vision is already impaired. We must assume that we have an eye problem, that we don't have comprehensive vision into their life, into their motives, into their heart. There was a time, a couple years back, uh, when I met someone that I really wasn't a big fan of, the first couple impressions I had. They were hypercritical, they were sarcastic in their speech, they were loud in both of those things, kind of obnoxious, absorbing a lot of attention to themselves. And I never said it externally, but internally I started to assume a bunch of things about them. Assume that they were kind of a bad person, that they were really negative, that they were cynical, that they they really needed to grow up in their life. They need to look a lot more like me is really what I meant, right? And then, in the course of getting to know them, I learned of a terrible trauma they had experienced in their life. 
a heartbreaking experience that I would never wish upon anyone. And they carried that with them every day. And so suddenly, I was face to face with my own self-righteousness. I had no idea what was going on in their life. I had no idea what they brought into those interactions. I didn't have all the facts. And I actually learned later that this person had just recently become a follower of Jesus, and they had made immense progress in their life to this point. You guys, we can never damn our neighbors because we never have all the facts. William Barclay puts it this way in his commentary on the book of Matthew. He says, No person knows the strength of another person's temptations. The person with the placid and equable temperament knows nothing of the temptations of the person whose blood is a fire and whose passions are on a hair trigger. The person brought up in a good home and in Christian surroundings knows nothing of the temptation of the person brought up in a slum or in a place where evil stalks abroad. The person blessed with fine parents knows nothing of the temptations of the person who has the load of a bad heredity upon his back. The fact is that if we realized what some people have to go through so far from condemning them, we would be amazed that they've succeeded in as being as good as they are. So according to Jesus, if and when we see someone with a speck in their eye, we have to start from a place of humility. Following Jesus means we become people who don't assume we know the whole story. We become people who observe without assigning motive. And we become people who ask good questions to our neighbor understand their story better. So that's the first thing we learn in this parable. Our eye problem means that we can't damn our neighbor because we never have all the facts. Second thing, our eye problem, and this is more the personal eye, our eye problem is that we assume our superiority and impartiality. When we give ourselves permission to damn our neighbor, we assume a position of superiority and objectivity. We start to play God, or we think that God is on our side and not theirs. We do this so often even if it's just internally, little quick judgments. We're always observing people and their words and behavior, and then in our minds, we're taking that extra step. And suddenly, we think we know them fully. Suddenly, we know why they do what they do. We assign motives and intentions to them. It becomes like a drug for us. It gives us a a hit of self-justification or moral uprightness. That's why outrage sells so well in our culture right now. On the news, on social media, it's because it feels good. It feels good to fill yourself up with a sense that you are somehow better than or at least less evil than the people around you. And then, if we're religious, we often double down on this superiority bit. We imagine that God is on our side. Like we're standing over here with God and that God is doing the same thing to our neighbors. We draw a line between our neighbors and God and us. We say, God, can you believe these people? And God's like, I know, right? They're the worst. As Christians, we so often assume that that's our position, but the reality is that that picture is a delusion. Jesus is exposing that to us. We misunderstand ourselves and God and others when we do that. We're not over here. It's not me and Jesus versus my neighbor. We're over here with our neighbor, and we're both looking at Jesus. We're much closer to our neighbor than we are to the holiness of Jesus. And so Christianity, friends, should always look like a preoccupation with loving others as ourselves, not an obsession with how others are not abiding by our own preferences or our rules or our standards. And that actually leads to the third part of our eye problem here, which I think in many ways is the heart of the gospel. Our eye problem is that we're just as guilty of all the things that we judge others for. Think back to the parable again here. Does our neighbor in this parable actually have a speck in their eye? Yes, they do. There's a speck there. 
They still have a character flaw or an ugly practice or a harmful habit. Yeah, humans are screwed up. But Jesus is telling us that before we ever approach them about their stuff, we should always assume that our sin and our pride and our insecurity and issues are more serious than theirs. The presumption here is that we should start by taking our own sin and brokenness far more seriously than our neighbor's. And that, by the way, isn't Jesus dragging us down into self-loathing or self-hatred. Remember, Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save. He came because he loves us. What he wants is to prompt in his community of followers honest self-reflection, a commitment to just a genuine evaluation of our own mess and the way that it leaks into and affects every part of our lives. You guys, if we don't start by dealing with our own stuff, we'll never be able to help our neighbors deal with theirs. And so when these temptations to damn our neighbors, to judge our neighbors come up in us, we should always start by asking two questions. One, what is the log in my eye? What is the massive tree trunk that is preventing me from comprehensive vision? And then two, how do I get the dang thing out? And those two questions actually lead us to the simple and powerful heart of the gospel. See, the amazing claim of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is that there's a way to get the log out of our eye. And it's by giving it to Jesus, by becoming his disciple. By definition, becoming a disciple of Jesus means acknowledging something about myself, confessing something, that I'm the kind of person who's in desperate need of God's grace. I have real issues. I have a massive log in my eyeball. And those issues are preventing me from seeing the world with clarity, preventing me from having comprehensive vision into the motives or the hearts and the minds of others. And so we bring that problem as disciples before Jesus. And then we see the way that he dealt with people who had that problem. How he dealt with other people like us. He didn't condemn them. He didn't damn them. He came for them. He loved them. And then he gave his life for them. And then he rose again and said, my resurrection life is for you. That's how he deals with those that we want to damn. That's how he deals with us. And so... When we practice this well, when we go there with our logs first, when we bring them before Jesus, before we talk to anybody else about their specs, then it's going to transform the way that we approach our neighbors. It's going to remind us that we're on the same side as them, that we're alongside them. And it actually will allow us to heal together better. That's what's most fascinating about the end of this parable. It's subtle, but notice at the end, Jesus doesn't say, well, since you can't judge, just well, get along as best you can and never critique anyone for anything. Never actually talk about your mess. Just good vibes only, right? That's not how he ends this parable. Instead, he assumes that we are to help one another with the junk that's in our eyes. It's our job. It's just that oftentimes we get the order wrong. We start with them instead of starting with us. He's telling us to practice good, healthy discernment, not unhealthy damning. And Paul actually picks up on this in the letter, uh, his letter to the Corinthians. He mentions that this is something that followers of Jesus get to do uniquely for one another because we're aware of the grace of God and that we can't damn our neighbors outside of this community. He mentions that it's not your job to judge other people out there in the world. It's your job to discern what's going on amidst you. I can't expect non-Jesus people to be doing Jesus-y things all the time. I can't condemn them for that. But if I'm a follower of Jesus and other people around me say they are, well, then we have to do this work of discernment well together. And so I think it's helpful to kind of unpack the process that Jesus is giving here with four practical steps for how we do this well. Because it's really hard. 
It's really hard to come to your neighbor and say, hey, I've been noticing something. Hey, I see this in you, and I've actually seen it in myself, and I think it might be something to look out for, and I will walk with you in it. That's a hard thing to do. It's hard to hear that, and it's hard to say that to one another, but it's a necessity. So here's the four steps on how we do this. Number one, always look at your own log first. Spend real time, intentional time, examining your heart on a regular basis. In our Transform Life curriculum that we just wrapped up, some of our groups are still going through it right now, we actually provided a tool for this. It's an ancient tool that people have used for hundreds of years. It's called the Examine. And the Examine is basically a way of looking at my day and reflecting upon where my heart might have been in the wrong place or right place. How do we do that well? That's the starting point. Then, number two, before you move to your neighbor, bring your log before Christ. And remember that he has forgiven you, that he's welcomed you, and that he loves you. Only when we know the depth of Christ's forgiveness of us can we actually extend that to our neighbor. Only when we know all of the things that God has forgiven us for can we rightly approach our neighbor about their stuff. And then, number three, finally, build trusted relationships with Christians that can be discerning, not damning. Remember that Paul writes this, and Jesus talks about this, assuming tight-knit relational communities. The early first century church met in houses. They were rarely more than like 15 or 20 people. So they give these instructions to people who you know really well, who you trust, who have watched you grow up, who have helped parent your kids. Build that sort of tight-knit, trusted relationship so that you can approach rightly to someone else, but also so that you can receive the approaching of someone else to you. It's a necessity. I need a close, tight-knit group of people to point out to me, hey, I'm noticing this. I see this. Every car ride home is a conversation between my wife and I about something like this. Not every car ride, but many car rides. After an event, she's like, hey, I noticed this. And I received that from her because I trust her. I need to build those sorts of relationships. Our hope at Midtown here is that community groups get to be some of that for us. If you're around Midtown or you've been around for a little while and you're not connected, let me know. I'd love to get you connected and start to build these trusted relationships. It takes time, but it's necessary. We get to grow together in this. And then finally, number four, remember that we are always for one another as Christ is for us. Any time that we approach a brother or sister about something in their life, we're for them. We're not coming to condemn them. We're not coming to cast them out. We're coming to see them redeemed, restored. That's the hope. Our hope is not that we continue to live in our bad stuff or that we condemn one another because our hope is that the bad stuff goes away, that Jesus heals it. And so remember that you are for one another always. Today, friends, might we remember the words of theologian Henry Nouwen? that only wounded healers have a right to heal. Only people who recognize the log in their eye have a right to approach others about their specs. All of us in this room have a ton of optic lumber, a ton of stuff in our faces. And that's actually why we're here. That's why we're in this room together. Because we can bring all of that together before Christ at this table, like we're going to do in a couple minutes. We bring our woundedness there. And what we learn is that Christ's woundedness will bring healing to us and then leads us out to be his vehicles of healing in the world around us. His woundedness transforms us as wounded people and then we go to a wounded world. And so might we, here at Midtown, become the sort of people who learn to discern well with one another. Not damn, but discern. And might we become a force of healing, of life and flourishing in a world that is set on damning itself. Because I know when we do that together, Jesus promises when we do that together, 
We will experience full and free and lasting life. We'll see the transformation of us internally and all of our relationships around us. And that is something that we are in dire need of, friends. So hear these words of Jesus. Let them soak in. Let them transform you today in this place and out into your world. Let's pray.